This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 419th episode, we have some of the last SVP 2022 news. Oh, that took a while to cover everything. It did. I We might have a little more next week. It depends on how much we get through this week, <laughs> but we're getting through it. Some of the really cool things from this week's SVP coverage are how tyrannosaurs broke their teeth. We have a new ornithopod from Antarctica. I love the Arctic dinosaurs. They are super cool. And there's also a couple talks about dinosaur arms. There's also some new stuff coming out from the Coelophysis bone bed in New Mexico and a peek into what's going on with the National Museum of Brazil after the fire. Very interesting. I'm excited to see because these are all things where only one of us covered it. So it's going to be the other person's first time hearing about all these things. (laughs) (laughs) We also have Dinosaur of the Day Panphagia. It ate a lot of things, I assume, since that means eat everything in Latin slash Good guess. (laughs) You'll have to wait to hear. And of course, we have a fun fact, which is something that I've just been obsessing over. I don't think it'll surprise Sabrina, but it's a very geology centered one. (laughs) But it's mad. Did I go down a rabbit hole? I think it's pretty cool, though. Anyway. Before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons for helping us to keep the podcast running. And this week we have three new patrons to thank, and they are Dr. Vespa, Adamontosaurus, and Othnelia. Thank you all for joining and helping us get to SVP and do all this great coverage. I think it's great at least. <laughs> <laughs> we had fun covering it. We did. And then rounding out our shout outs, we've got Morgan Eklove, Shelby, Resident Zeno, Wouter, Histology Source, Kalosaurus Rex, and James Pasco. Thank you so much for supporting this show and helping us to make sure we can keep the show going from week to week. And I hope you all enjoy the bonus content that we promise is coming your way soon from the SVP coverage. Yeah, we were getting through all the dinosaur stuff and then seeing what we'll leave for the bonus content. And there's a lot. There is a lot. And we're also, we've gone backwards slightly. So we're a little bit farther from 250 patrons. I think we're at 229 right now, which means we're like 21 away from doing those bonus episodes every month of non-dinosaur stuff because people have been asking us for a long time to do pterosaurs and plesiosaurs and stuff. So if you want to hear about that, tell a friend. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Or join our Patreon at the Triceratops Level It Up because that's what's going to get access to all those those extra ad-free episodes once we hit 250 patrons. So jumping into our SVP coverage for this week, 
we're going to go first through the Colbert Prize posters, which were the ones that I checked out. And the Colbert Prize, if you're familiar, are basically the really cool posters. So they're like extra special. They get separated out from all their individual types of poster sessions. They bring together what they think are maybe the most impactful posters. And a lot of them are always about dinosaurs. So I'm going to talk about my favorite dinosaur posters from that session. The first one I'm going to mention is by Taya Weinberg Hensler, and they were looking at dental macroware on tyrannosaurids. What does that mean? So I feel like usually we're talking about microware. Yeah. And that's the little tiny marks that need magnification. Basically, by definition, if it's microware, that means you need magnification to see it. And microware can show details like what a dinosaur chewed on or how the teeth gently touched each other and sort of like little scratches. So the the orientation of those lines of the scratches will tell you basically some details about how they chewed. But I think macroware people discovered much earlier. Mm -hmm. So those are marks that can be seen with the naked eye by definition rather than magnification. Mm -hmm. And they're formed, quote, during tooth on tooth, tooth on food, and or tooth on grit contact. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So it's probably harder on the teeth that you'll able to see it without the microscope. Exactly. Yeah. So these are like bigger impacts. So maybe the most common type of macroware that you see is a facet. A facet on a tooth is a smooth and flat surface. Sometimes there are some small scratches on it as well, but it's mostly smooth. It's often caused by teeth rubbing on each other. Mm. So humans can get wear facets on our teeth, Mm -hmm. especially if we have like a crossbite or something like that. Well, that makes me think of humans and how Kids have those grooves on their teeth, Mm -hmm. and then adults, it's all smoothed out. Yeah. So, yeah, it can definitely wear down over time. So, a facet is when it's like on a specific side, basically, that's getting worn. A spall is another type, and that's also smooth, but it might not be flat, and it includes missing enamel. So, this is going beyond Mm -hmm. just sort of rubbing on the enamel and sort of wearing down the enamel on a specific side. This is actually getting through the enamel. Probably hurt in real life, or once they when they were alive. Yeah. And you can see it on lots of things. Like I imagine if you're talking about a dental battery and like wearing through the teeth, that would be considered a spall. And they said, quote, spalls result from repeated contact between the tooth surface and hard substances such as bone, causing the outer layers of enamel to flake off without substantially altering the overall tooth, end quote. So in other words, yeah, that's like they're biting into something and it's really causing a little bit of damage to the tooth because, for example, you're chewing on a bone. Mm -hmm. Or I I presume also chewing on grit accidentally could Mm. cause something like this. Then the last type of macroware is breakage, which is pretty self-explanatory. That means that you're seeing the inside structure of the tooth. Ooh, ouch. Yes, that's like root canal sort of territory or crown (laughs) territory if you're a human. If you're a dinosaur, it's hopefully you're getting a new tooth soon. So they say those are probably, quote, formed as a result of tooth failure, such as when the animal bites down on a bone or other hard object with too much force for the tooth to withstand, end quote. So it's similar to a spall, but it's even more intense. (laughs) Yeah, not great. But obviously macroware can show if the different teeth were chewing on different things or in different ways, because you can tell, oh, this one has a facet on it versus this one broke. Mm-hmm. And you can get a lot of detail that way. And were they meant to be using the teeth that way if it broke? Yeah, exactly. 
So these researchers were particularly interested in if different tooth positions in tyrannosaurs had any differences in basically how many facets they had, how many broke, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Previous analyses apparently were looking at isolated teeth, not teeth and jaws. So that detail was missed, Mm. like which part of the mouth was having these different sorts of effects. They compared 16 tyrannosaurid specimens to a dozen Komodo dragon specimens. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was a little surprising that they had more dinosaurs than the living animal analog in it. Because usually it goes the other way since there are so many more living examples to choose from. Maybe Komodo dragon, at least these specimens, all had similar teeth positions. Yeah, it could be that because the tyrannosaurids had less complete jaws. Mm. And then, yeah, Komodo dragons also have more teeth. They have about 60 And I didn't realize this, but Komodo dragons actually have proportionally pretty similar teeth relative to their head size as tyrannosaurs. Hmm. So Komodo dragon teeth are about an inch long. I always thought they had tiny teeth, but it turns out that Komodo dragon teeth are actually completely covered by their gums. What? Which is a weird fact I need to learn more about. And apparently when they bite, the teeth sort of like stab through the gums and it causes bleeding and stuff. seems like a really weird evolutionary thing to have happen. Especially when they go into feeding frenzies. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's weird. I'm sure there's way more to this detail, like how that evolved. I got to know. Mm -hmm. And it does make you wonder, like with dinosaurs, how much gum they had. But... Yeah, Komodo dragons also have the longest teeth in the middle of their mouth and then shorter teeth at the front and the back, which is pretty similar to tyrannosaurs as well. You know, tyrannosaurs have the much shorter teeth right in the front, sort of nipping. Mm-hmm. And then in the back, they get a little bit shorter too. I think we talked about how that's sort of just a geometric thing, where if you have really long teeth in the back, if you try to close your mouth, it sort of stops you from closing your mouth, like mm-hmm. a, a big wedge back there, basically. What the researchers found was, quote, the high incidence of lingual facets on premaxillary teeth and the presence of rubbing-like facets on the labial surfaces of tyrannosaurid teeth suggests that the premaxillary teeth were used for nipping off the last remnants of flesh from bone, end quote. Scraping off the last good bits. Yes, exactly. And the reason they could tell it was scraping, so they say lingual facets on the premaxillary teeth, that basically means that the very front of the very front teeth have wear marks on them. Mm -hmm. So it looks like they were rubbing repeatedly on something and they were wearing down. And the lip isn't going to do that on its own. It's got to be rubbing against something in the environment. And the most likely thing is it's bone because bone is strong enough to wear down the teeth over repeated exposure. Hmm. They also found that there were wear facets on the bottom teeth which rubbed on the top teeth when the mouth was closed. So they're at that intersection between bottom teeth and top teeth. So they think that probably happened just when biting through a piece of food. Mm -hmm. As they bite into it, you know, it's fine if you're biting meat, you know, that's normal for the teeth to be near each other. But if you bite too hard and they puncture through it, then the teeth actually come in contact with one another and you get a little bit of wear there, which isn't necessarily a problem. You know, that's basically how teeth work. It's kind of a scissoring action there, tearing through from both sides. Mm -hmm. But they did find that there was evidence of spalling, which often coincided with those facets. In other words, the teeth were hitting each other a little bit too hard, and potentially they were also running into something hard, like when they were crushing bone Mm. in those spots. But even though there was spalling in those places, there also was spalling not in alignment with the facets at some points. Basically, what that means is that some of the teeth didn't run into each other when the tyrannosaurids were doing a lot of biting. They did find that the spalling was usually 
on the tip of the tooth or on the quote-unquote mesial carina, which is basically the front curve of the teeth. If you're thinking about like how a T-Rex teeth are curved, there's the front curve, sort of the longer curve, and then there's the back curve, which is sort of the concave side of it. Mm -hmm. And previous studies have shown that basically when a T-Rex bit down, it probably would have any bones would have intersected with that front of the tooth. So this sort of coincides, this backs up those previous studies that when biting into bone, they would have worn down the front of the teeth more than the back of the teeth. Mm. They also found that breakage mostly happens just behind the middle of the mouth. (laughs) And that's the point where the maximum force would have been applied. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that also is backing up previous studies because they're seeing these broken teeth in spots where it looked like T-Rex would have wanted to bite if it was going to try to crush some bone in that peak force area. I always think of a dog gnawing on a bone because mm-hmm. they always get it like as back as far as they can in their mouth to get the best leverage on it. Except that in this case, instead of gnawing, it's more of a single powerful crunch. <laughs> and then as the teeth burst through that bone, they might run into each other and cause some spalling or breakage potentially. wonder if they ever got splinters from the shards of bone. Yeah, I I know from some studies they've found like pieces of teeth in their coprolite and mm-hmm. they think that they might have actually swallowed their own teeth, <laughs> like chunks of their own teeth. And yeah, definitely lots of chunks of bone. And yeah, it's possible that one could get stabbed up into the gum and cause an infection. We know they got lots of infections in their mouths. Interestingly, even though this backs up that spot in their mouth is where the breakage happened, they said, quote, Unlike Farlow and Brinkman, we do not observe a large number of wear features along the distal edges of the teeth. However, we do find that breakage features account for most of the wear along the distal edges of the teeth, supporting Farlow and Brinkman's proposal that the distal carina was engaged in tearing or trapping of flesh as the head was jerked backwards, end quote. Hmm. So what they're saying there is we talked about how the front of the teeth wear down from Mm -hmm. biting. But they don't break on the front. They tend to break on the back of the teeth, at least in this position in the mouth. Mm -hmm. And what they think is happening there is those back teeth, if they bite into an animal, they jerk their head back. It's basically breaking the tooth, (laughs) like those teeth in the back from yanking too hard. And it's breaking it from the back forward. And you can tell that because if it was breaking from going, you know, like jamming his face forward Mm -hmm. or just straight down, you wouldn't see the teeth breaking from the backside forward. Right. So, man, T-Rex, I I know it has that bone crushing ability. Yeah, but you don't really think about what it does to the T-Rex teeth. Yeah, exactly. Usually I just think, oh, the prey that it's breaking the bones of. Exactly. But not what it's doing to the predator. Yeah, exactly. And on top of that, the idea that T-Rex not only was a bone crusher, but it still seemed to do a little bit of that like puncture and pull type thing that Mm -hmm. we said, we always say like Allosaurus or these ones with sharper, maybe smaller teeth, Mm -hmm. certainly narrower teeth, probably were tearing off flesh by biting down and then pulling their head back. But T-Rex was certainly doing some of that too, because it was doing it hard enough that it was even breaking some of its teeth. Mm -hmm. So maybe it was almost doing like a puncture bone and like rip out (laughs) huge chunks. I don't know what it was doing, but it's... Good thing it can replace its teeth. Yeah, definitely. So that was definitely one of the coolest posters. I tried to talk to the author of that poster a few times because they were kind of in the front. Mm -hmm. There was always a huge crowd around them and it it was too hard to get to them. It's too interesting of a poster. Yeah. And you have big old T-Rex teeth on it, you know, mm-hmm. it really grabs your attention. 
There is also that new ornithopod species from Antarctica. That poster is by Emily E. Brown. And when I say new, it was actually found back in the late 1980s. And it goes back millions and millions of years. So <laughs> That's yeah. true. Yeah, <laughs> in that way, for sure. It was found on Vega Island, which is right next to James Ross Island. So it's part of the James Ross, I think they call it formation. In other words, it's in the warm part of Antarctica. It's not where Glacialosaurus on that Mount Kirkpatrick, like way deep into Antarctica. This one's like almost up by South America mm-hmm. by comparison. You know, it's not even icy all the time. It can be fairly warm. I think it gets up to like 60 degrees sometimes in wow. the summer. So Fahrenheit, yeah. Yeah, yeah not Celsius. <laughs> this area is from about 70 million years ago, but it hasn't been named yet, this dinosaur. It's been called the BAS ornithopod based on a previous museum which was housing it. And it's described as a bipedal herbivore around four to five meters in length. So you're talking about roughly 15 feet. Pretty good size. Yeah, for an ornithopod, you know, that's probably big, Mm. I would say. But on the poster, they do say that it's currently being described. So we should have a name for this dinosaur soon. Mm -hmm. Because even though the poster wasn't a description, they do have an analysis of a few details. They say based on the large flocular lobe near the inner ear. (laughs) Basically, so it had a large portion of the brain probably needed for sight while it moved its head quickly and that's what's called gaze stabilization in other words you know it's using brain power to stabilize what it's seeing when it's jerking its head around and the fact that it had this large flocular lobe that's really fun to say (laughs) (laughs) they're assuming that it had quick head movements which could have been used quote for courtship or evading predators end quote oh And I say what you often say, which is, why not both? Yeah. (laughs) Why not? I mean, these evolutionary features can be used for many things. They also found a jaw with a good set of teeth and replacement teeth, which helps to show how the teeth were being replaced over time. Teeth are a big part of dinosaurs, huh? Yeah. And fossils in general, Mm because they have nice hard enamel that tends to preserve pretty well. And also in the jaw, we can see details of the neurovascular canal as well. Mm. It's actually really cool. So they found that it's a simple canal down the jaw, sort of from the back to maybe three quarters of the way towards the tip. Mm -hmm. And then near the tip, it splits into a whole bunch of other canals. So basically, it's the equivalent to having more nerve endings at the tip of the jaw. What they say is that's more like Fuquisaurus than Edmontosaurus. Yeah. And that means that it's more like early Cretaceous Asian ornithopods than it is like late Cretaceous North American. So it's more sensitive at the tip of the beak or the tip of the jaw? Yes, exactly. And it's also interesting because these early Cretaceous Asian ones were obviously way earlier because this is from 70 million years ago. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's way, that's quite late in the Cretaceous. And it might help us figure out, you know, exactly where these lineages came from. But yeah. Their big takeaway was exactly what you were saying, that they might have had a sensitive predentary or, or you could call it a beak. Mm-hmm. And possibly that could have been used for probe foraging, like sticking its nose <laughs> in the ground or around to try to find tasty food. Mm-hmm. Or it could have also been used for social interactions, like we saw with that Spletosaurus paper where they said it was a sensitive lover. I was just thinking that, <laughs> yeah. Why not both? Yep. <laughs> we had another ornithopod poster by Victor Radermacher, and they were trying to quantify how dental batteries changed in ornithopods, including hadrosaurids. More teeth. 
Yes. So we don't know why dental batteries evolved. The dental batteries, again, are when there are a whole bunch of teeth packed in so closely that they sort of become this giant mass of tooth. It's mm-hmm. like a big grinding surface. Can really mash up the plants. Yeah, and like grind it down. I, th- I always think of it like a mortar and pestle kind of thing, like really just grinding the, the food down. So we think that it could be related to their large body size, or it could be related to how there were so many different species filling different niches And that dental battery allowed some of them to eat food that basically other animals weren't eating. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they looked at three ornithopods, Haya, Tenontosaurus, and Brachylophosaurus. Those were, I listed those in increasing size. Mm. What they found is that Haya had 0.03 milliliters of worn tooth material. Okay. Which is like a fraction of a drop. Yeah. (laughs) Not a lot of tooth worn away. Tenontosaurus had about 3.5 milliliters of worn tooth material. That's considerably more. It's about 100 times as much, fractions of a teaspoon amount of wear. And then Brachylophosaurus had 84 milliliters of worn tooth material, which is 3,000 times (laughs) as much as Haya. But it is bigger. It is bigger. And if you're familiar, Brachylophosaurus has like a real dental battery. It's like a Montosaurus, you know, similar, like big old advanced dental battery. Tenontosaurus had a little something going on and Hyo is pretty simple. Mm. Like barely even a dental battery. It's like one or two teeth sort of touching. Mm -hmm. Interestingly though, even correcting for body size, the larger ornithopods were going through way more tooth material. So they still had two orders of magnitude and three orders of magnitude difference, although slightly less than not corrected for size. So it's the same orders of magnitude, like thousands of times and hundreds of times, mm-hmm. just not quite as big. The tooth wear goes up dramatically as the dental batteries get more complex. In other words, there's more teeth, they're more packed together, and the teeth can be a little bit more complex as well. And it's not just as simple as earlier versus later ornithopods, because Haya is significantly later than Tenontosaurus but it has that more basal dental battery. Hmm. So it's not just a simple story of, oh, there was different food around and therefore they had to change their teeth. Yeah. Unless, of course, Haya was eating those like older foods Mm -hmm. and these other ones were taking advantage of the newer foods with that. But yeah, we don't really, we still, the question remains why they evolved these things. And They pointed out they haven't looked at ceratopsians yet, which are the other major group that evolved dental batteries. Mm -hmm. So maybe that'll help us figure it out because it's believed that they independently evolved those dental batteries. So it would be a really good, you know, sort of natural experiment to see when it happened, how it happened, which ones got it. Is it just the big ones? All that kind of stuff. Dental batteries are really fascinating because we don't have really anything analogous to it today. Mm -hmm. At least not on that scale. Yeah. (laughs) We also have a new Mongolian alvarosaurid. Yeah, alvarosaurids are great. They are fantastic. This poster was by Koto Kubo. Again, this one doesn't have a name yet. It appears to be closely related to Shavuya, although we think that it is a unique dinosaur because it has a straight jaw, which is different than Shavuya. Shavuya's jaw turns down pretty dramatically, Mm. almost like it's frowning or something <laughs> in the front of the mouth. Good that there are jaws to compare it to. Yes. So you know for sure. Yeah, exactly. They also found other details in the bones from throughout the skeleton. 
And there is a lot to compare because we have nearly complete skeletons of both of these individuals, which is really remarkable because most alvarosaurids are pretty fragmentary. Mm -hmm. But with this Shibuya and this new dinosaur, new alvarosaurid, we have a lot of them. This is the ninth alpharosaurid, like named species, wow. or will be, from the Namekt Basin in Mongolia. So something about the Namekt Basin preserves them really well. Yeah, and it's just, Mongolia is an amazing place to find dinosaurs. There's so much diversity in a lot of different animals there. This new alpharosaurid, I think, has the cutest finger I've ever seen on a dinosaur. <laughs> well, that's what they're known for, right, is there? fingers yes so alvarosaurids are known for having that one really large claw and on its extremely short arm so it's mm -hmm. basically like a big claw sticking out of its chest <laughs> but in this case there is a tiny second finger to go with it so this little tiny finger next to that big claw has three finger bones including the claw hmm. And the entire finger is only about one centimeter long, oh. <laughs> so about half an inch. And it's not the only alvarosaurid that has a second finger, though. It isn't, yeah. So Shavuya was found with two tiny fingers. Mm -hmm. I think this one might be even tinier, and it's just the <laughs> one finger. And it's only about a millimeter or two wide, wow. the, the finger bones. It's so amazing. And for comparison, the whole larger finger that it has, like each individual bone is longer than this entire little finger. That's amazing that this was all preserved. Yeah, it's so cool. They also found a similarly tiny toe bone, but that's a little bit more typical because it's the tiny hallux type toe on the back of the foot. Mm -hmm. And we see that in a lot of theropods and things where they have these really reduced toes and occasionally we find those. But it's really cool to see the same kind of thing on the hand. And it shows you just how complete this dinosaur is that they're finding these like basically a couple millimeter bones and they have the whole, you know, finger and the whole toe. It's so cool. Yeah. One of the things they pointed out is that it wasn't just the arms of alvarosaurids that were shrinking. Their backs, or you could call them their trunks, were also getting shorter. So comparing this new alvarosaurid to Haplochiris, Haplochiris had 13 back vertebrae, and Haplochiris is an early alvarosauroid, so like much earlier in the family tree of alvarosaurids. Mm -hmm. This new alvarosaurid only had eight back vertebrae, and the vertebrae didn't really lengthen to compensate, so it had a pretty small trunk or a, a short core. <laughs> I don't know how to what you call that chunk, but like the middle body part of the animal. Yeah. Not, you know, from behind the neck and in front of the tail, that area. Abdomen? Yeah, the abdomen, I guess, doesn't include all of it, though. It, mm. like, kind of stops. It's just the lower part. But, yeah. Interestingly, though, alvarosaurids still had pretty long necks. It actually had more neck vertebrae than Haplochiris. It had 12 <laughs> versus 10. <laughs> so, it's and it had a pretty long tail, too, as well as a pretty big sacrum. So, we can see that it had seven sacral vertebrae between the hips and over 35 tail vertebrae. So it's still had a long tail, a pretty long neck, but a really short back and really long legs too. So it was changing proportions in a really interesting way. Mm -hmm. They think that that shorter back may have been an adaptation to turn more quickly. It's basically less mass to turn and it's sort of like easier to pivot. And since they also still had those really long legs, basically the femur, tibia, and foot are each individually about as long as the whole back. <laughs> oh. So when you look at it and you you notice that detail, it looks very lanky. Yeah. It's extremely long legs compared to the side, like the bulk of the main part of its body. That might mean that it was extremely cursorial or very quick. Mm -hmm. 
good for running. Exactly. And that might have made it more efficient for foraging. And one potential advantage there is that since it was in a desert environment, that might have been an adaptation for living there so that, you know, you could cover longer distances more efficiently. And if you could go a little bit longer without getting food yeah. kind of thing. You see all kinds of possibilities for names here, something to do with it running or foraging or even its lankiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And cursoriality obviously also has a lot of other advantages too, like avoiding predators and things like that. So they could work that into the name too. Mm-hmm. And the last Colbert poster I'm going to mention is by Michael Serio. And they were talking about the hypothesis that Troodon nests appear to be rearranged by the Troodon nest sitter. Yeah. Okay. Like they laid the eggs and then they say, this isn't right. (laughs) We rearrange it. I think it's more like they lay the eggs and then they adjust them so they can incubate them better or something like that. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's kind of what I was going for. Yeah. Basically trying to get them in like an ideal formation. Mm -hmm. So what they wanted to see is if it was possible that Troodon might have used its forelimbs in order to adjust these eggs. And I feel like I have to throw an asterisk on Troodon because Troodon technically as a holotype is just teeth. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that think Troodon shouldn't be considered a valid genus. We keep hearing that there's papers coming out. Yeah, (laughs) that there's like a more complete Troodon skeleton. Yeah. It seems to be pretty widely accepted in the paleontological community that Troodon is valid. Mm -hmm. But occasionally there's someone who's like, eh, (laughs) <laughs> this hasn't been peer-reviewed. Someone needs to put some Troodon material out there. So I don't know. But everybody else is saying that it's valid. So I, I think it's it's pretty well accepted at this point. Unfortunately, we don't have a complete forelimb to see how much Troodon could have moved the eggs with its hands. But they came up with a clever workaround. Basically, they combined arm bones, especially from the hand, from different individuals of Troodon Then they digitally scanned them in and scaled them so they all sort of matched the same size arm and hand and tried to use that to recreate a complete forelimb or arm and hand. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, it still wasn't 100% complete. They were missing some of the radius and the third finger, and that especially affected their wrist completeness. Mm. So they couldn't reconstruct the wrist completely, but they could do a pretty good job with modeling the hand, fortunately. Then they used that recreated hand to check the range of motion of the hand, basically how much it could close its hand. So testing if it could get it tight enough in order to grab an egg. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's the gist. So the thought is that they grabbed the eggs, not that they just pushed them around. Yeah, exactly. They wanted to see like how well they could manipulate the eggs with their hands. Mm -hmm. How were their fine motor skills? Yeah, pretty much. What they found was that with the maximum flexibility of the hand, using a pretty simple model, the hand could get to about 69 millimeters between the fingers, Mm -hmm. which is what, about three inches, a little less than three inches. However, the living hand would have obviously had soft tissue on it. And like we always talk about, the claws would have keratin sheaths over the tops. So it would have been a little bit tighter than that, maybe significantly tighter than that in life. And to go along with that, the average size of a Troodon egg in one of these nests is about 67 millimeters, which is right about the same. Mm -hmm. So given that they're so close, it seems likely that Troodon could have grabbed its eggs and moved them around to the nest, sort of adjust them and arrange them just so. Mm -hmm. But 
Again, this range of motion study was a little bit simplistic. They didn't use that six degrees of freedom that we talked about recently. And they even mentioned they had an audio upload. I watched this poster. Virtually? Yes. So they were saying in the future, they're going to do a more detailed analysis, try to get some of that soft tissue sort of analysis in there yeah, and get the most likely hand position so that we can see if it was grabbing its eggs and moving them around. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty cool to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Because obviously modern birds, because they have wings, can't pick up their eggs and move them around. They have to sort of nudge them with their face or their feet or whatever. But they still do a pretty good job even with that. Yeah. So It's also an interesting aspect of parental care. Yeah. Starts young. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. And I, I do think though, like you were saying, basically, did they have to use their hands to move the eggs? Mm-hmm. Is there are a lot of other ways they could have manipulated the eggs and moved the them snout? around. Yeah. Yeah. Even their feet if they really needed to. Yeah. And even if their hand couldn't completely close around the egg, yeah. it doesn't mean they couldn't just push it from the side or something. Yeah. But obviously, it's a lot easier if you can just pick it up and move it around. Sure. But I just think about like humans in a basketball takes two hands for me to hold a basketball (laughs) or I can just kind of push it with one hand. Yeah, very true. You wouldn't say like humans can't move a basketball around because most of us can't palm it. (laughs) (laughs) And now we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break. But when we get back, Sabrina is going to tell me all about coelophysis and a bunch of other things. I don't even know what to expect (laughs) from SVP. You'll be surprised. Hooray. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
All right, Garrett, I'm going to start with a talk. This was in the paleoecology session, and it was about polar dinosaur tracks. Nice. Anything with polar dinosaur, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, let's see what that's about. Is this North Polar or South Polar? South Polar. This is Ooh. Victoria, Australia. Nice. Oh, yeah. So it was polar then. Yes. Less polar now. Yes. This was presented by Anthony Martin, who maybe that name rings a bell because he's one of our early interviewees and he talked about Erichtodromaeus, the burrowing dinosaur. Mm -hmm. So I guess we could thank him for our going down Erichtodromaeus burrows. Yeah. So he talked about, yeah, they found polar dinosaur tracks from the early Cretaceous, again, in Victoria, Australia, so south of Melbourne. And the tracks were preserved in these fine-grained fluvial floodplains. And when the dinosaurs lived there, it was cold. Makes sense. Polar. They had a mean annual air temperature of negative 6 to positive 11 degrees Celsius. Yeah, that's pretty cold. So frozen a yep. decent chunk of the year. Yep. The tracks, they think, were probably formed around late spring to summer season. And ornithopod and theropod fossils have been found there in the past. The smallest tracks were between 5 to 10 centimeters, and then there were medium tracks that were between 30 to 35 centimeters, and some large tracks that were up to 50 centimeters. Hmm. So a good range, and they molded and they cast some of the tracks, especially the vulnerable ones, so that we have the data. The smallest ornithopod tracks were 10 to 12 centimeters, and then there were medium theropod tracks that were 18 to 34 centimeters long. There were also these large theropod tracks. Like I said, some of them were up to 50 centimeters. These were around 44 to 47 centimeters long and are, quote, akin to Australovenator. Yeah. I was when you said medium 18 to 34 centimeters, like that's getting up over a foot long. That seems like a pretty <laughs> yeah. decent size foot. Like I might say that's bigger than medium. Yeah, but that's how you know there were some extra large dinosaurs in this area. Yeah, because what your biggest one was in the 50s. So you're talking about maybe... Up to 50, yeah. Okay, so almost two feet. Not the biggest because we know some of the tracks get up to like a, a full meter, like 100 centimeters. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Australovenator was a, a decent sized predator. Oh, yeah. But what might be even arguably more interesting about these tracks were the smallest tracks were 5 to 12 centimeters long. They were theropods, but they think they're actually, well... They're still theropods, but bird tracks hmm. that's based on the angles of the toes and having these thin, sharp claws and the way that the claws curved away. Also, the thin digits, the toes relative to the footprint lengths. And these tracks show a variety of birds. And these are the oldest known bird tracks in Australia and possibly the rest of Gondwana. Wow. How yeah. old were these tracks? Early Cretaceous. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's always cool to see where the different puzzle pieces come from for mm -hmm. these evolutionary things. It would be funny if the earliest evidence we had of a bird in that area was this track. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard to fossilize those tiny bird bones, but I guess the tracks in some situations fossilize easier. I'm sure bird tracks are hard too if you think about they're so thin. Mm -hmm, very small. Mm -hmm. You have to have a very fine sediment to get those small details. Yeah. That's cool. So five centimeters is like two inches. It was a pretty small track. Yeah, pretty cute. There was also a cool preparator talk. It was a case study of field jacketing techniques. 
specifically in the Neil Brar Formation of Kansas. This was presented by Elena Fike. The idea was to look at like, okay, when you're in the field, what's the best way to do field jacketing to preserve those fossils or protect those fossils? And obviously it's going to be a little bit different depending on whatever formation you're in. Hmm. But they wanted to see, okay, overall, what could we recommend to people? I thought everybody did the same and it was just put a bunch of plaster on it. Well, Flip yes, it over and but, add more plaster. But then how you do it and the exact ingredients, yeah, turns out it makes a difference. Now, in this particular formation, the rock is chalk. It's 87 to 82 million years old. And they're saying... There are a lot of different ways to create a field jacket. So also this was new to me because I've never done any jacketing techniques. So you can soak burlap in water. Uh, you could add water to partially cured plaster just as a couple of examples. So what's the best way to do it? They did a lot of experiments to figure it out. One of the things they did was they figured out the best way to mix the plaster and then test its strength. And they also looked at how to best cut the burlap and test its strength. They called it the bias cut versus a straight cut. And the bias cut is when you cut on the diagonal grain Mm -hmm. versus a straight. It's just straight. With the threads. Yeah. They found that the bias cut could handle more weight. And they also found burlap should not be soaked in water. Hmm. So, yeah, that was pretty interesting. They also had some other tips like... You want to make field jackets safely and you want to have sun protection, sunglasses, outerwear. You also want to have ear protection, like earplugs and eye protection, like safety glasses and lung protection, like a mask or a bandana and also gloves. And when you're cutting, cut away from yourself. Also make sure you're hydrated and always be communicating. I could see things going awry if you're cutting and then someone doesn't realize you're cutting. This sounds more like a a list of safety tips. Yeah, the end was the safety tips. They also added some structural support using poles, which said they helped support awkward shaped jackets. I never really thought about that in terms of, yeah, supporting the weight of these jackets. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty interesting. Okay, so there were a lot of dinosaur-related posters. I'm excited to tell you about them. Okay, so the first one I'll tell you about is by Lukas Shapinsky. And the poster was about a second individual of... Shri Devi. Ooh, I like that one. Yeah, it's the Dromaeosaur from the late Cretaceous in what is now Mongolia. And I think, that, was that the one that had the two sickle claws? Yeah, I think when you covered it, when it was a new dinosaur, you were talking about how it had a longer toe claw than Velociraptor. That's right, yeah, it didn't have an extra one. It was just extra long. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that specimen, they had a good number of bones, but... I don't think they had a skull. So this second individual, though, has a partial skull and part of the left leg. And it was collected back in 1970 and referred to Velociraptor mongoliensis. So similar story there. But based on some foot bones, comparing the foot bones to Shri, they think actually this individual is Shri. Mm. Yeah, because Shri has a lot in common with Velociraptor. Yeah. And this second specimen is about 80% the size of the holotype, so a little bit smaller. Looking at the skull, it shows even more similarities between Shree and Velociraptor. Hmm. Just as an example, like the heterodontous maxillary teeth and the shallow maxilla. So in other words, they both had different types of teeth and shallow maxilla. I guess that's it had a 
relatively flat <laughs> snout. So like top to bottom was shorter. Yeah. But then Shri has distinct features, obviously, otherwise you can't name a new dinosaur. Mm -hmm. But some of it in the skull is that it's got a relatively short fenestra, the hole in the front of the eye socket hole, and parts of the lower jaw are also deeper. So we know a little bit more about that dromaeosaur. Cool. Yeah, Shree's a really cool one. I was just thinking of it as like a velociraptor with an extra long claw. Yeah. <laughs> as long as I'm remembering correctly that that's what it has going on. Okay, this next one, there's not a lot to go on yet, but it's interesting. This is by Chinzorig, and it's a preliminary description of new fossils of a tyrannosauroid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Mississippi in the U.S., the mm. Utah Formation. That's Utah with an E-U-T-A-W. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah, they found isolated fossils, but it includes the vertebrae and parts of the feet. And they think it's probably a new type of dinosaur, but it's all very preliminary, so there's mm -hmm. not much to say yet. And they think it's going to be a tyrannosaur? A tyrannosauroid, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. We have very little tyrannosaur anything, or even tyrannosauroid, from east of that western interior seaway. Mm-hmm. So we'll keep an eye out for whenever that description comes out. Yeah. My guess is it's, it sounds like it might not be enough to actually name a new Tyrannosaur, but they might be able to say like, you know, it's different, but not complete enough to really know exactly what it is. Yeah, it could be. Unless they find more fossils. Yeah. This next one is just a, a quick note. Also, this was Rina Uematsu and others, and they described some eggshell fragments, nine eggshell fragments and impressions that were found between 1988 to 2009. They're found by three amateur collectors in the Gifu prefecture in central Japan. So it's from the lower Cretaceous. What's interesting is that they found turtle eggshells with theropod eggshells. Huh. In the formation, yeah. So like they were nesting together, maybe? It was unclear. I mostly saw that they were just found together. Hmm. So again, turtles coming up <laughs> with with theropods this time, though, not sauropods. Yeah. Well, I don't think anyone would be surprised if a theropod snacked on a turtle. Yeah. Well, but these are turtle eggshells and theropod eggshells. But, you know, you could come up with all sorts of fun stories like theropods laying their young near the turtle young. So when they <laughs> hatch, they could have an easy <laughs> snack. I guess. Yeah, you could. Or it's just good conditions for preserving nests and they weren't even around at the same time. And yeah. Just, just you know. happened to end up together. Yeah. Because if turtle eggshells fossilize, the theropod eggshells also fossilize. Definitely a possibility. Yeah. Okay, going back to dinosaur tracks, there was a poster by Thomas Adams. And he and a team re-examined some dinosaur tracks that were found near Bandera, Texas. Now, these tracks, they were found back in 1940 by dinosaur hunter Roland T. Bird from the American Museum of Natural History. And at the time, they mapped a sauropod trackway. There were 12 manis tracks, the hand tracks, and one partial pez track from the foot. And he had interpreted back in 1940 that not having any back footprints was, quote, due to the trail being made by a floating brontosaur that swam in a way that only left impressions from the front feet. Uh-huh. Now, in 2002, these tracks were relocated, and they found more impressions something like 18 impressions total, as well as a second sauropod trackway with five steps. Again, mostly the manis, the front feet, and a single isolated theropod track. 
and they studied the tracks, they found that these were made in shallow water conditions. So the sauropod tracks are probably under tracks, and that's when there's a layer of sediment beneath where it left an actual track. So the dent in the sediments are caused by the animal's weight on them. Yeah, so in other words, it's not the actual top layer of the track, which is what we always think of. It's like if you're walking on the beach, you left the impression, and then the top got scraped away, Yeah, and it's just that, like, of the very bottom of where your foot ended up without the top piece. Yes. So if you look at that, along with the other trackways, it seems unlikely about the floating brontosaur or the swimming dinosaurs, especially the large theropod one. Yeah, so it could just mean that when they walked, there was a little more weight on the front legs than the back legs. And since the top got scraped off, since the back legs didn't leave a deep enough impression, we just have the most of the front legs. Although you said there were some footprints. Yeah, not partial. Not just inputs. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting that they concluded back in the 40s. Oh, must have been swimming. Yeah. Yeah, the the whole sauropods in marshes or lakes or oh, whatever. that's true. To support their body weight was, I think, still fairly popular. I think the, that was until the 60s. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's not possible, though. We've seen lots of recent papers talking about swim tracks, mm-hmm. but usually that's more based on an interesting sort of scrapiness to them, you know, like yeah. a swim stroke. It looks a little different. Yeah. Rather than it just being only hand or only feet. Yeah. I also got an update on the Utah Raptor block. Oh, nice. Yeah. So Jim Kirkland had a poster. That's that, what is it, like 10 tons or something? Something A nine-ton block, yeah. <laughs> With a ton of Utah Raptor specimens. Yeah, and so packed in that it's hard to prepare because you start doing one bone and you run into another bone. Yes. So in the poster, they're talking about the specimens represent a growth series, and they possibly represent a pack that was attracted to this death trap by iguanodonts. Hmm. That sounds a lot like the Cleveland Lloyd Allosaurus hypothesis. At least one of the hypotheses. Mm Mm-hmm. That's also in Utah. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) What's going on in Utah? (laughs) Now, of the smaller individuals smaller Utah raptor, the smallest ones had skulls about 10 centimeters long, and the larger ones had skulls about 25 centimeters long. Okay, so like four inches to nearly a foot? Yeah, and then a full adult has a skull about 60 centimeters long. So there's that growth series. Yeah, yeah, that's quite a range, like four inches to two feet, pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. There's also different proportions in the limbs and the maxillae. So there's debate if there's more than one theropod taxon, more than one type of theropod in this block, or if it's due to just growing, mm-hmm. also known as ontogeny. They found tails of adults and juveniles, and these parts of the tail, they're similar to Achilobater and Yergovuchia. Those are all raptors? Yes, all dromaeosaurs. Although I think there's debate on Dakota Raptor, depending who you ask. Yeah. I don't remember your Govuchia. I didn't remember that either until I read this poster. But it was also found in Utah. So one way or another, it looks like the different dinosaurs in there are dromaeosaurs. Mm-hmm. But it's possible there might be a new species. I kind of hope it isn't. Yeah. This is one of those situations where I'd rather that it was all one species. Right. Because then you get like you the You learn whole... more about Utah raptor. Exactly. And it's one of the coolest dinosaurs. So I'd rather just have a bunch of Utah raptor. We could see like it's... It's growth series, which seems 
probably like the most simple explanation. Yeah. Unless we can find a whole bunch of differences that couldn't be explained by them just getting bigger. Every time we talk to Jim Kirkland about the Utah Raptor Project, though, he says like there is decades worth of work. Yes. He always says he's not going to finish it. It's going to be like uh, something that gets handed down to a future generation of paleontologists for them to work on. Yes. Which is such a cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot. We are far from knowing exactly what's going on in this block. Mm-hmm. There was also a poster about fossilized dinosaur skin. This is by Nathan Enriquez. And it talked about how dinosaur skin, fossilized skin often has a distinct color or texture and sometimes has particular elements in it. Like chemical elements? Yes. And the skin composition could be different based on you know, just being from different dinosaurs or it could be from where the fossils were deposited or somehow, you know, something that happened when they became fossils. But it hasn't really been studied what makes the composition different. So they were looking at, okay, what makes the elements in dinosaur skin different based on if it's a different clade or different kind of dinosaur or how it was deposited or even just temporal context, like when in time it was deposited. They analyzed a piece of hadrosaur skin and they scanned it. This skin came from the Horseshoe Canyon Formation from the late Cretaceous. And they found that the skin was most strongly enriched with iron. Mm -hmm. There was also a lot of other stuff like oxygen, magnesium, sulfur, titanium, iron, nickel, barium. That is a lot of elements. Yes. But though it was enriched with iron and it also had these other elements like higher amounts, it was depleted in carbon, sodium, aluminum, silicon, and calcium. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Thinking about not only what needs to add to the skin in order to preserve it, but what gets removed (laughs) so that it doesn't decay. Exactly. So they found that skin specimens, yes, they do vary based on these different conditions. And their initial results suggest, quote, Iron is important for preserving skin in fluvial environments, and carbon is more essential in marine settings, end quote. So if you are looking at the skin, you might get a little more information about where that fossil was buried. Yeah, and I guess if you know what kind of elements are in that rock, you might have a better guess at whether or not it was going to be likely to preserve skin Yeah, based on if it's marine or a river setting fluvial. Yeah. Now, they did say they do need more data and they need to analyze more to better understand and verify, but Mm -hmm. it's a cool idea. Yeah. We've heard about the iron side of it before. Yeah. That a lot of times the iron-rich rocks are more likely to get skin in them. But like you were saying, too, also looking at what's not there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, I've got two more to tell you, and they're the ones I did promise at the beginning of the episode. (laughs) So we got there, but there's just so much cool stuff. It's hard to narrow down. So Danny Barta had a poster on the Coelophysis bone bed from the late Triassic, and he and his team have been having a lot of information coming out recently about this bone bed. Now, it was found at Ghost Ranch in New Mexico, and what's interesting is that not many pathologies were found, even though you often see pathologies in bone beds where a group of dinosaurs died together. Hmm. And at first, they thought there were no pathologies, but then... They did some histology, and they kind of accidentally found pathologies that weren't otherwise visible. Oh, okay. So it was inside the bone, some yeah. of the pathologies. Yes. They found this bony abnormality in the partial right tibia, the leg bone, of one of the coelophysis specimens. So there's no texture or rugosity 
externally on the tibia, and there's no anomalous tissue in the medullary cavity. So there wasn't a fracture. So it was just an abnormality within the bone tissue itself? It's a bony callus. Yeah, it's a new one to me. And they could only see it doing histology. Hmm. I guess that's another benefit to doing histology. You might find something inside the bone that there's no evidence for yeah. <laughs> outside the bone. Yeah, they said this is the first documented pathology from this coelophysis bone bed. And it could be from growth slowing down due to trauma, like an injury or malnutrition, like scurvy. Oh, okay. Yeah, we definitely haven't heard about dinosaur scurvy before. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is an isolated tibia, so they don't know which individual belongs to, and it's hard to test for other pathologies than in the skeleton since you've just got the tibia. Oh, that's kind of a bummer. So they can't compare and say like, oh, it had this in the tibia, but it didn't have it elsewhere, or it was all over the skeleton. Yeah. Because we only know the one bone, at least for now, and unless in the future they figure out how to combined this tibia with some other bones. Yeah, which maybe. And then last, Amanda Kellner talked about the National Museum of Brazil, which we all know there was a big fire in 2018 and a lot of specimens and other artifacts were lost. Yeah, a lot of dinosaurs too. Yeah. So after the fire, the museum developed these new long-term exhibits and They've got four circuits for four different themes. There's universe and life, cultural diversity, historical circuit, and environments of Brazil. And the vertebrate paleontology themes will mainly be in the universe and life circuit. Basically, they're talking about how they're going to exhibit at the museum going forward. Okay, so they're rebuilding. I think so, yeah. And the central concepts here are that Earth is special, there's characteristics on Earth that allow for life, and they're going to have themes and collections from geology and biology for the universe and life circuit. And they want to show the question, where did all this diversity of life come from? Which, it is interesting when you think about it. Oh, yeah. And nowhere better to present that information than Brazil, yeah. which has you know lots of different ecosystems, not the least of which being the Amazon rainforest with just insane diversity. Yeah. And, you know, in general, they want to show the process of evolution and its major milestones, which dinosaurs are a big part. Mm -hmm. So it's cool to hear about the museum moving forward. Yeah. I'm still curious to know what exactly they managed to salvage because we still don't know exactly what was lost. Mm -hmm. I guess we, they might not ever officially say this is definitely completely gone because right. it's possible they might be able to pull something out later. Yeah. I'm sure it's also just Hard to verify. Mm -hmm. All right. So we didn't get through quite all of the SVP stuff. <laughs> so it turns out we are going to have a little more next week. But in the meantime, we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break and then we'll get into our dinosaur of the day, Panphagia. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Panphagia, which was a request from Crow via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. It was a sauropodomorph that lived in the late Triassic in what is now San Juan province, Argentina, And it looked like other early dinosaurs. It had the long tail, the somewhat long neck, long arms, and it walked on two legs. The fossils found had similar features of the Sauropodomorphs Saturnalia, which we covered in episode 369, and Eoraptor, which we covered in episode 60. Now, the size and proportions were similar to Eoraptor, though Panphagia is slightly larger with relatively shorter hind limbs compared to Eoraptor. The front of the skull between the eyes was narrow, too, like Eoraptor, and unlike Herrerasaurus, which is another early dinosaur. The lower jaw was proportionally more slender also compared to Eoraptor, and it had, Panphagia had a proportionally short nasal. The holotype of Panphagia is about 4.3 feet or 1.3 meters long. Oh, that's little. Yeah. Oh, early dinosaurs, they tend to be smaller. (laughs) Even for a sauropodomorph. (laughs) Yeah. It's a little tiny thing. And the holotype includes parts of the skull, vertebrae, parts of the shoulder, parts of the pelvis, and hind limb bones. The bones were mostly disarticulated, except for 15 of the tail vertebrae, but all the bones were near each other and there were no duplicate bones, so it's likely they all came from the same individual. The limb bones and vertebrae had hollow shafts like Eoraptor and Herrerasaurus. These fossils were found in 2006 by Ricardo Martinez and then described in 2009 by Martinez and Oscar Alcobert. The type species is Panphagia protos. The genus name means all to eat in Greek, and it refers to this dinosaur probably being an omnivore, quote, which appears to be transitional between carnivory and herbivory. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, because we think all the earliest dinosaurs were carnivorous, but sauropods, obviously. They became the well-known herbivores. Yeah, maybe the best-known herbivorous dinosaurs. Yeah. Now, the species name Protos means the first, and that refers to its basal position in sauropodomorphs. Okay, so they do think it was a sauropodomorph and not a herrerasaurid. Yes. It lived around 231 million years ago. Ooh, yeah, that's old. Yeah, it's the most basal known sauropodomorph so far. And it had teeth that may mean it was an omnivore. The teeth in the back of the jaw were shorter than the teeth in the front, and they were leaf-shaped. And the teeth in the front were better for eating meat. Hmm. So this discovery really helped show how sauropods evolved. Again, living so long ago, that was around early Carnian. And Panphagia helps show an earlier origin of sauropodomorphs during the Middle Triassic. Now, based on animals found in the formation where Panphagia was found, the Ischiagualasto formation from the Carnian, which had both saurischians and ornithischians. It had ornithischians, huh? (laughs) (laughs) we're always talking about how those are totally missing for the fossil record they must be including some probable ornithischians i think so in their list there are also theropods and sauropodomorphs from the saurischian side so based on that martinez and alcobert when they were talking about panphagia suggested that saurischia split into theropods and sauropodomorphs in a few million years because this was already on the sauropod lineage. Yes. Pretty close to that base of the Sauruskian family tree. Yeah. 
And based on Panphagia and its relatives, Soriskian dinosaurs are thought to have started as small animals that could run. And eat meat. Yes. Now, Panphagia had features that made it clear it was a basal sauropodomorph, even though it is close to the common ancestor of theropods and sauropods. And you see these features in the teeth and jaws, as well as features in the vertebrae and the ankle bone and the leg bone lengths. Panphagia had a relatively long skull, which, quote, represents the primitive condition when compared with the reduced skull length in other sauropodomorphs, quote. Oh, yeah, they had little, little heads <laughs> relative yeah. to their body size. But Panphagia had a relatively long one. Mm-hmm. Hadn't shrunk yet. Yeah. In 2012, Martinez, Harrow, and Alpadetti described the partial brain case of Panphagia. The holotype of Panphagia was a subadult, and that's based on the lack of fusion in the brain case fossils. And the brain case had features that further linked Panphagia to sauropodomorphs and to it being one of the most basal sauropodomorphs, such as having a proportionally long frontal skull bone, that bone on the, well, it's the bone on the front of the skull. Panphagia lived alongside at least five other basal dinosaurs, including Eoraptor and Herrerasaurus, which makes sense then why you would keep comparing these dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. That's a that's a really neat dinosaur, Panphagia. I like the name a lot mm-hmm. for an omnivore, and it's, it's really cool that it, it shows that sort of transition from carnivore to herbivore in yeah. sauropods. I feel like that's a dinosaur everyone should know about and almost no one knows about. I didn't know about it until you just told me about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an important one. Yeah. So for the fun fact today, I got into this by researching marble because I saw some cool marble countertops, which led me down a whole series of studying about different types of marble and how it forms and what it's all about. Now I see why you said I wouldn't be surprised because you've been talking about (laughs) marble marble a lot lately. (laughs) It's really cool. Marble's super cool. It's not really the most ideal surface for use as like a countertop, but it's got these really unique characteristics about it which just make it really pleasant to look at (laughs) (laughs) not the least of which is it's technically a sedimentary rock which is where most fossils come from so i just like the fact that it's like ooh, it's sort of fossily even though (laughs) it doesn't often have fossils anyway the fun fact is only tangentially related to that and it's that we don't know why vertebrates have bones made of calcium phosphate but invertebrates are made of calcium carbonate hmm Okay. It's a very specific issue, but it's related to marble. So calcium carbonate is what coral reefs are made out of. It's also what snail shells are made out of and what clam shells are made out of. Tons of stuff in the ocean and just tons of invertebrates in general use calcium carbonate as basically their main structural chemical. Mm -hmm. Over time, calcium carbonate collects in places because it's not particularly useful to eat and it doesn't really decompose all that well. So it often collects in places like the seafloor. And as it builds up over time, it basically just turns into sedimentary rock, which is called limestone. That's what calcium carbonate as sedimentary rock is. It's, it's limestone. Okay. And limestone is a great place to find fossils. You know, there's places like Lime Regis with Mary Anning and yeah. you know, these cliffs Well-known. of limestone. Yeah, with, with dinosaur and other marine reptile and thing fossils that pop out of it. But if limestone goes through metamorphosis, it becomes marble. And that's sort of how I ended up on this topic because marble can also continue to have fossils 
It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen all the time, but yeah, you can find marble with fossils inside it. And calcium carbonate is also really important because in ocean invertebrates, that calcium carbonate is one of the ways that oceans help to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. So basically, you know, it's a big carbon sink. People talk about the ocean being a carbon sink. Mm -hmm. It's because carbon dioxide can dissolve into water and it can either get included into the bodies of these invertebrates as calcium carbonate, mm -hmm. or it can just turn into carbonic acid in the ocean water. Unfortunately, if there's too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and getting into the ocean water, the animals can't keep up with it and can't turn it into calcium carbonate fast enough. And then the oceans get more acidic because it has nowhere else to go except for turn into carbonic acid. And that increases the acidity of the ocean. Not all animals can handle that. So some animals start dying off. Mm. And then there's also a really bad feedback loop because the increased acidity can kill off things like things living in symbiosis with coral reefs, which ultimately leads to less coral reefs, which means there's less calcium carbonate being pulled into the coral reefs. And that means there's more carbon dioxide, which is becoming carbonic acid, which means more acidic oceans, which means, you know, so it's, it goes up. everything is connected. Yes. And it, it sort of reinforces itself. So that's calcium carbonate and why it's really important. But our bones are, and all vertebrate skeletons, are made from calcium phosphate. And it's chemically pretty similar to calcium carbonate. Both are mostly oxygen. Carbonate and phosphate is a, a big old oxygen thing. You know, there's like three oxygen for every calcium or, or phosphorus. But there is some calcium in both of them. And then our bones have phosphorus while those invertebrates have carbon rather than the phosphorus. This switch or the evolution of the calcium phosphate skeleton happened about 480 million years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a really long time ago, but that's basically when vertebrates evolved. Okay. So there were a few potential reasons why vertebrates may have made the switch from calcium carbonate to calcium phosphate, but we really don't know why. Like, we don't know which one it was. We just kind of can tell that there are some advantages for calcium phosphate, and we just sort of assume that maybe it was one of those advantages that caused it to happen. Right. Also, it happened so long ago, it's hard to know why. Yeah, yeah. And the farther back you go in the fossil record, the harder it is to get these details. So there's a paper by D. Wu et al. in Insights of Biomedical Research, and they were going through some of these possibilities. So what they found is that 480 million years ago, there was just a ton of phosphorus available in the oceans. And so it's possible that vertebrates just took advantage of it. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of phosphorus, might as well use it for something. It's like when new plants appeared and all of a sudden dinosaurs came up with dental batteries or <laughs> something else. So that's one possible reason. There was just a lot of it. So some of the animals took advantage of it. Calcium phosphate is also more porous, or it leads, it leads to more porous bones in the form that it's in our bones. And that leads to several benefits. One of them is that makes the bones more elastic and stronger during movement especially when it has the other elements in it that work with the calcium phosphate. Obviously, it's nice to have stronger bones. The porous nature also helps increase the surface area, which is useful to speed up any chemical reactions that happen at the interface of bone. You'd want more surface area for those things. It's like you were talking about the surface area for heat transfer. That also happens for any sort of chemical connection. 
And it also helps carry nutrients in and out of the bones more quickly. So bones can be a reservoir for phosphorus and calcium. Hmm. If they're made out of calcium phosphate, it's with that higher porosity. I think one of the most interesting things is that calcium phosphate is also less susceptible to damage from lactic acid buildup. Oh, So lactic acid is the result of anaerobic exercise. Mm -hmm. And it's what causes you to, quote unquote, feel the burn when you're exercising. Or the day after being sore. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So obviously we all can have this lactic acid buildup and it's something we can use to get extra energy and, you know, like extra movement out when we surpass the aerobic abilities of our metabolisms. So obviously having bones that aren't damaged by heavy exercise is a pretty helpful trait to have. So those are some possible whys for why we evolved the switch from calcium carbonate to calcium phosphate. And there aren't a lot of hows, but one potential how is it could have evolved from armor. (laughs) So ostracoderms are these fish-like animals that have a phosphate-based skeletal armor. The outermost layer is actually hard dentin, (laughs) like Mm. our teeth, which prevented them from growing after the armor formed, which is basically the same problem that invertebrates have with exoskeletons. But this is like an exoskeleton on a precursor to a vertebrate. It's Mm. pretty interesting. Eventually, those hard shields of armor evolved into individual plates and then later evolved into something more like scales and then eventually even later evolved into internal skeletons and each step allowed them to grow bigger and have less limits on their growth around that skeleton slash armor. Mm -hmm. So that's maybe why we have calcium phosphate skeletons rather than calcium carbonate. I think it's really fascinating that there was this switch from one chemical to another at such a fundamental level in our bodies, in our distant ancestors. Like, I can't imagine the the evolutionary pathway for switching the yeah. bone chemistry. It's just nuts. So it definitely seems like we're better off from the switch from calcium carbonate to calcium phosphate. It's not always the case. You know, a lot of times we talk about these evolutionary things and like how I, I'm frustrated that we only have two sets of teeth, <laughs> but we're just sort of stuck with it because of evolution. But in this case, it seems like the fact that we got calcium phosphate bones is like the better option. So... Good job, ancestors. Yep. And it it also kind of made me wonder, I wonder if there's a calcium phosphate equivalent of marble, but I didn't get that (laughs) far down the rabbit hole (laughs) yet. Yet. You might eventually. Yeah. We'll have a part two of this fun fact. There hasn't been as much time for calcium phosphate since it's only 480 million years Mm. versus calcium carbonate was around before that. (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get in, it's not too late, on that sweet bonus content and hear even more stuff about what went on at SVP, including things about pterosaurs and mosasaurs and animals that are not dinosaurs, then join our community, patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time. Good